My name is Jerry McIntosh, and I work with the missions ministry at Jefferson Baptist Church. And every once in a while, they let me out of my closet and stand up here on this platform and uh, share with you some thoughts that God has given to me. And so I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate you being here this morning. It's a lovely summer day in Oregon. Those are not common. And uh, so I appreciate the time investment that you make here in fellowship this morning. I'd like you to stand with me, if you would, please, for just a moment. We're going to read the scripture. We're going to read from Psalm 144. And I think it's a good idea to put ourselves in the mind of the scriptures. And so if we can put that up, Psalm 144, verses 1 and 2. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Now, before you sit down, I'd like you to notice two things on that slide in those verses. And the first has to do with, obviously, this is a psalm about war. And you see the words there, trains my hands for war, for battle, for fortress. But it's also about worship. And you see worship uh, themes in there, my stronghold, deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge. And so this psalm, 144, like a lot of David's psalms, includes an element of petition, in this case, victory in war, and it includes worship. And that's the theme of the message this morning. Thank you much for your for standing. You can sit down, have a seat. Number one in your notes, <clears throat> the disciple of Jesus Christ deploys worship as a weapon in spiritual warfare. The disciple of Jesus Christ deploys worship as a weapon in spiritual warfare. That's the theme of the psalm in my view. And it brings to mind, as I was thinking about this earlier, last month we had Independence Day and we see lots of flags. And if you watch uh, TV on the, and the movies tend to be more patriotic oriented. And there was, um, it brings to mind one of my favorite stories about World War II. And it happened on June 2nd in 1942. Um, This was six months after Pearl Harbor, um, and it was a month after the Battle of Coral Sea. And the setting is that the Japanese Navy was completely taking over the Pacific Pacific Rim. Uh, They attacked China, they attacked Indochina, they had conquered the Philippines, they had damaged Pearl Harbor, Uh, They had taken air bases in the Solomon and in the Marshall Islands down by Australia. And so there was this rim, this circle. And in that um, conquest, they took a lot of um, natural resources, oil and um, rubber that were necessary components for war and metal. And they also enslaved millions of people. And so there was, there was this juggernaut. We had, uh, our, much of our Navy had been destroyed. Fortunately, the aircraft carriers were not in Pearl during the attack. That turned out to be a huge mistake on the part of the Japanese and fortunate for us. Um, <clears throat> because the first part of the uh, Pacific War in um, World War II was a carrier war. It was projecting power by carriers. And so um, in the Battle of the Coral Sea, there was kind of a, kind of a draw 
Uh, we lost a carrier, the Lexington. They lost a carrier, but they were stunted. They were stopped in advancing any further in taking more land and enslaving more people. So they were, the Japanese were pretty mad about that. And they decided that it was time to destroy our carriers, destroy the carriers that they missed at Pearl Harbor. And so they set up a trap. And the trap was set up off the northeast uh, border of um, north of Midway. I got a slip there. Uh, battle of Midway is with the battle, and they um, they put they deployed their uh, navy off the northeast uh, uh, corner of Midway, and but we were able to discern their uh, code, and so we knew we actually about twenty percent of their code we were able to decipher and interpret. But from that, we were able to gather that there was an ambush planned at Midway. And so our admiral, Nimitz, decided to counter that by deploying our forces on the, off the northeast corner of Midway and reverse the trap. And we were going to sink their navy. Um, so um, in that process... There was uh, an attack, so the, the, we knew where their navy was, and so we deployed our airplanes, and we sub- deployed um, torpedo bombers from, the, um, from our aircraft carriers, the Enterprise and the Hornet. And the Yorktown, which had been significantly damaged in the Battle of the Coral Sea, um, Nimitz was told it would take three to six months for her to be battle-ready again. And Nimitz said, you got three days. And in testament to our parents and our grandparents' generation, the Yorktown was headed to sea in the Battle of Midway in three days with her construction crew still aboard. Her planks on her flight deck were still not down, but she was going to war. It was an extraordinary um, demonstration of courage and ingenuity and industrial strength. So anyway, they're all deployed, and they launch these torpedo planes against the four Japanese carriers, the Kaga, the Akagi, the Hiryu, and the Soryu. Now, the problem was America was not really, really ready for war at that time. And so we, our pilots were experienced, our planes were old, and the weaponry that they used, the torpedoes, didn't fire 90% of the time. And so it was a disaster. We sent 45 planes out after those four carriers, and four of them made it back home to their own carriers. It was a tragic loss. But there were things that happened because of that that made it possible for the Navy to ultimately prevail. The Battle of Midway is often referred to as the miracle of Midway because there were things that happened that were extraordinary. There was a... Uh, confusion on the part of the Japanese leadership. There was a radio that didn't work at precisely the right moment. And there was an appearance of a rainbow at a crucial element of the battle. We should never have won that war, our historians say, because we were just too inexperienced. But we prevailed, and it was kind of reminiscent as you read the story of the the wheels falling off the chariots of the Egyptians in the Exodus. It was just, there were so many cumulative events that were unexplained that historians like to dismiss as lucky. 
or accident or fortunate or coincidence. They use those kinds of words. As Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God, we know better. Amen? So, um, so the torpedoes didn't work. We lost the element of surprise. They knew we were there now. They knew where our carriers were. And so they were uh, preparing to blow away our aircraft carriers with superior um, planes and experienced pilots. And we were, we were going to lose. It was not a good thing. There was a, um, a commander. I think I have a picture of his plane. His name is Lieutenant Commander Wade McCluskey. And he flew a squadron of dive bombers that looked sort of like this. And the torpedo bombers approach a target like this, and dive bombers come like that. And so he had 32 of them. And he was plan B. We lost the element of surprise. We knew that the Japanese were going to get ready to attack our carriers. And so the pressure was enormous. The problem was, since the attack of the torpedo planes, the the Japanese fleet turned, and they went off a different direction, and we didn't know where they went. So McCluskey's out here with these 32 dive bombers, and he's doing kind of a search, a zigzag search of where they used to be, and where he thought they might have gone. The problem is that airplanes have a limited supply of fuel, and they were running out. And as they were looking for these carriers, um, they begin, they be, he began to receive reports um, by code through his other pilots that, hey, I'm running out of fuel. I got I to gotta go back. Military code determines that in that situation, you go home, you save your pilots, you prevent your planes from having to crash in the sea. But he knew the pressure. He knew the consequences. He knew the outcome. And he just didn't want to give up. So at 10.20 a.m. on June 2nd, 1942, America and the Navy was losing the war in the Pacific. We were, we were poised on the cusp of disaster. We're going to leave uh, Lieutenant Commander Wade McCluskey in that position. We'll come back to him in a few minutes. I'd like to um, go back now to the text in Psalm 144. And develop the first four paragraphs. What I read to you this morning was the first uh, paragraph. And the premise is that the disciple of Jesus Christ deploys worship as a weapon in spiritual warfare. There are many examples of that. I'd like to maybe touch on two of those before we go to the text. The first one is in Joshua chapter 6 verse 20. This is the battle of Jericho. And the nation of Israel was like America, was inexperienced in war. And we, didn't, we were not confident in our ability to conquer these seasoned uh, countries who were experienced in battle. And so Joshua told, and we, this is the story where they surrounded Jericho for seven times. And on the last day, uh, they were, and they were supposed to be quiet. And on the last day, they took out the Ark of the Covenant. They traced around seven times, and he told the people to shout. So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. You know, the army was probably there. They had shields, and they had swords, and they had spears. 
But the battle wasn't won by the army. The battle was won by worship. There's a passage in scripture repeated often. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. And so the army's efforts became sort of a mop-up effort, a clean-up effort, because the hard work had already been done. Another similar story is found in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. This is the story of King Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he, had, um, he was being uh, under siege, and he called to his friend Isaiah, and um, they consulted together, they prayed to God, and when he, Jehoshaphat, had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. As he went out before the army, there's the army again, they showed up, and they said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. These were the people who had laid siege in Judah, so that they were routed, Second Chronicles 20, 21, and 22. So there's, and there's many stories. This story is often repeated, particularly in the kings of Judah. And when you look at the Psalms, the, particularly the Psalms of David, they're frequently about battle, where David will make a petition for victory over his enemies, but he couples that with worship. And it, he follows a similar pattern and a similar theme throughout the Old Testament. The Bible is filled with such examples. Now, what principles of warfare do you suppose might exist in Psalm 144? I'd like to discuss with you this morning three principles that follow in the next three paragraphs. Before we do that, I want to establish a baseline concept, and that's number two in your notes. All warfare is spiritual. All warfare is spiritual, and spiritual warfare ultimately results in violence. Spiritual warfare ultimately results in violence. You know, we're Americans, we're kind of shielded from a lot of, um, of what happens in the world in spiritual warfare. Um, we think we are, uh, we're not really, and, um, and we typically disassociate combat which is what we're talking about here in the text, from the spiritual warfare that you and I struggle with. But in God's eyes, it's the same thing. And the weapons that we deploy to defeat that uh, war, to, to, do, to gain victory in that war, are the same. The violence can be physical, as in war, but it can also be uh, expressed in violence in our community, such as murder. It can be the violence that we experience in our own community in trafficking of children, in young boys and girls who are used for slavery. You know, we're told that the slavery that exists in the United States today is comparable to the level of slavery that existed in 1860 prior to the onset of the Civil War. We're really not that much different in terms of just sheer volume. We are in war for the souls and the hearts of our children in this country. It can be expressed in violence in relationships, in domestic violence, in divorce, and in um, just the, the violence that we inflict upon each other as human beings. 
Um, the divorce rates has been, has been established for many years is really no different in the church than it is in the larger world, in the secular world. Um, emotional violence is another kind of violence that is um, expressed in spiritual warfare and the use of chemicals, the use of alcohol, the use of narcotics that is unprecedented in our country. We are engaged in a spiritual battle for the well-being of our people. There's a passage in scripture that appears over on the wall in the other room, at least it does during our five days of prayer, typically shows up. It's found in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. And it's um, an apostolic prayer. Paul is talking about himself in the context. Talk about how he wars as an apostle. And so uh, I've been, that's been suggested to me, well, this is really an apostolic prayer. And that's true, but the principle is validated in other passages and scriptures that applies to all of us. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 10. All warfare is spiritual. And all warfare can lead to and often does lead to violence. And the weapons of our warfare as disciples of Jesus Christ is to deploy worship as a weapon in that warfare. So let's go back now to Psalm 144 and set the table a little bit about David, who we believe wrote the psalm and where his situation was. This psalm was written when David was first king in Judah. He hadn't been king. uh, He wasn't king of the whole nation of Israel at this point, just a small percentage. And so he had to be frustrated because when you consider his story, he was picked out to be king by Almighty God. He was recognized as a man after God's own heart. He was anointed by the most famous prophet in Israel, the prophet Samuel. He was, um, he was clearly used by God in warfare. He killed the lion and the bear, and he used the confidence from that experience to kill Goliath. He was placed in the court of King Saul, Uh, He was a great musician. He was able to play music to calm Saul when he was troubled in spirit. Um, But there was also the the flip side where um, Saul was jealous of him. Uh, The women would sing about David and his conquests where Saul killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And so periodically Saul would try to uh, pin him against the wall with a spear. You read that account in the latter part of 2 Samuel. And then um, uh, when he was in a favored position, uh, David uh, received uh, Michael, Saul's wife, uh, Saul's daughter, as his wife. And then he lost her because he fell out of favor. And he was a friend to Jonathan, Saul's son, good friend, lifelong friend. And then Jonathan died in a battle with his father on Mount Gilboa. So it was up and down, up and down. And you got to be thinking, David's got to be thinking, being a king has got to be easier than this. 
This can't be this hard. I am anointed by God for crying out loud. And so it's in that context during the first two years of his reign as king over Judah that he writes Psalm 144. He's in war. He's in battle. Um, there's a passage um, in Second Samuel, I believe, that I have here where he describes, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew steadily weaker. But he was, he was having to fight all the time. And he had to get tired of it. And so he wrote this psalm. It suggested that the Civil War probably lasted about two years. But he didn't really assume the kingship over all of Israel for about seven years. He was king for 40 years total. But he was only king for um, Israel for about 33 or 34 of those years. So no doubt King David could have emphasized with Commander Wade McCluskey in the Battle of Midway in this, as he was writing this passage because he was confronted with a, a problem that extended way beyond his own experience. His own, the consequences were way beyond just to himself. These were national and historic in their implication and he had to feel a tremendous amount of pressure. There's no doubt that there are people in this room today, who can relate to that? As we read our prayer letter, we hear about people struggling with damage to relationships. We have people who struggle with health issues, whose consequences are permanent, are terminal. We have people who are dealing with fractures in, in um, uh, relationships caused by drugs, by alcohol, and by narcotics, which is unprecedented in our community. And I would expend, extend beyond that, that there are people who grieve over prodigals who are uh, separated from their, from their lifelong faith. And there are people who grieve over the direction of our country. People who grieve over the direction of our country. You know, it used to be that... Um, when uh, you read the scriptures, the Bible has always, for my lifetime, has always been recognized as the, as the standard for moral authority. And we can have confidence that um, what we read in the scripture has been the, uh, the beacon for right and wrong and has been for thousands of years. But now we hear a strange conversation about how the Bible and its principles are hate speech. And it's like the moral discussion in our country has been turned on its head. And we grieve that, particularly those of us who are older and recognize that it has not always been that way. So in the psalm, David gives three important principles to consider. And the first one that we read already was the introduction. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. His, my loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. So we get the premise right away we're talking about war. And the psalm is a royal psalm. There are a series of psalms typically written by David that are about protection of the king, and this is one of them. 
where David prays for the protection of the well-being of the king, recognizing that the king's well-being has an implication for the rest of the people. The psalm is personal. If you look at the next slide, I've emphasized the word, the personal pronouns that he uses, 11 of them, in two verses. Not at all common. My rock, my hands, my fingers, my loving kindness, my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, and whom I, I take refuge who subdues my people under me. It's personal. The pressure that he feels is personal. Number three in your notes, we do not have the capacity in our own strength to prevail in spiritual battle. We do not have the capacity in our own strength to prevail in spiritual battle. Now we're going to paragraph number two in verses three and four of Psalm 144. O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. It's like David understands that God will not share his glory. God will not share his authority. And we trip ourselves up as human beings when we try to, when we believe our own press. And we think it possible to accomplish anything of consequence in our own authority. John, uh, the parallel passage is found in John 15, 5 where Jesus teaches his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. If my words abide in you, if, if my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. Now you can keep busy and we all keep busy. You can fill your time with lots of things. But in terms of accomplishing anything of consequence for eternity, we can do nothing separated from the ministry of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. God resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the proper time, casting all your care, your anxiety upon him, for he cares for you. I'd like to pull out the word grace here, because it has traditionally had a couple of of, uh, definitions that uh, would seem to apply. And grace is invariably referred to as unmerited favor and is also defined as um, enabling power. Now, if we read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, that would seem to suggest the definition is unmerited favor. But if you look at this passage, uh, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, which suggests the definition might be more suited to enabling power. And people have said, well, both can apply. So if you read this First Peter passage, God resists the proud, but gives his enabling power to the humble. That would seem to apply. So it's, um, I, I like to choose both. I think that both can apply. Um, I don't, I'm not a much of a linguist to, to uh, challenge the issue. But it's interesting, and I think sometimes instructive to consider both. Number four in your notes, God alone has the power to bring victory in spiritual warfare. God alone has the power to bring victory in spiritual warfare. Now we're going into paragraph three of Psalm 144, where he says, Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains that they may smoke. 
Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and confuse them. Stretch forth your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from out of the great waters. Out of the hand of the aliens whose mouth speaks deceit and whose right hand is a right hand to falsehood. Psalm 144 verses 5 through 8. Somebody might reasonably ask, well, how can you make a connection between the Battle of Midway and Psalm 144? And one of the things that where I think that there's a fair comparison, there's several actually, but one of them is what was happening in our country during that part of our history. Our country has a tradition of praying in times of crisis. Most recently, it happened in 911 when the churches were filled, particularly in the big cities. Doesn't happen as much as it used to, but there seems to be an appreciation, even among Christians who only attend church on Christmas and Easter, that God is sovereign and that God ordains the events of men. And so we tend to go to church. Well, during the Battle of Midway, there was a uh, story, I have an article here uh, written by a chaplain an army chaplain retired named James Lindsay. And he, uh, uh, the article is entitled, How Prayers Undergirded Victory in the Miracle of Midway. It's recognized that what happened there was God-ordained. And he ha- his mother was named um, Verna. Verna Lindsay and his dad was named second class Stanford E. Lindsay Jr. And he was on the, on the Yorktown. And he was on the, on the deck and had duties uh, launching planes. And they both recognized at the same time that our country was in deep peril. And so they were, they were prompted to pray. And Verna prayed in their home 5,000 miles away from the ship for a solid hour for her husband and for their quest. And uh, James prayed on deck of the ship. And he, as he prayed, people gathered around him. There was a recognition that something big was happening and that God was in it. And they appealed to heaven. There's a recognition, even if not clearly stated, that the disciple of Jesus Christ deploys worship and prayer as as a weapon in spiritual battle. So um, prayer was a common uh, discipline of our people at that time, at least uh, among some of them. Number five in your notes, the battle belongs to the Lord, that's in quotes, is not a trivial doctrine of Scripture. When the writers of Scripture want to emphasize something, they repeat it. And um, I was looking for this. I actually typed in Google, the battle belongs to the Lord. I put to the Lord, I put that in Google, and I found a webpage that has a hundred references in the Scripture to that theme. And I looked through the references. I don't know that all of them exactly apply, but most of them did. And you can add a comment uh, or you can add another verse. And that uh, link is listed in your notes. The point is that the battle belongs to a lo- the Lord is a common theme, is a dominant theme in the scriptures in both the Old and the New Testament, both the Old and New. Number six in your notes, the disciple of Jesus Christ deploys worship as a weapon in spiritual warfare. Fourth um, um, 
paragraph in Psalm 144, we had the introduction. We had a humble recognition of our frailty before God. In the third paragraph, we had a a petition for victory in war, and now there's worship. And this pattern, especially those last two paragraphs, are a common theme, particularly in David's Psalms. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you, who gives salvation to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the evil sword. Rescue me and deliver me out of the hand of aliens, whose mouth speaks deceit and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Now, if you've been paying attention, you'll notice that there's some repeated language. You have the third paragraph where there is a petition for war. And then you have the fourth paragraph, which is worship. And I have a slide here that compares the two in verses 7 and 9. Um, I don't know how easy it is to read that text, but it's very, very similar language. Rescue me and deliver me out of the hands of great waters, out of the hands of aliens uh, whose mouth speak deceit. And there, there's, the text is very similar between the two. Now, why do you suppose that is? What point is... Uh, king david making as he writes this passage you know in the old testament i've mentioned before if you want to emphasize something you repeat it and when he's talking about two different subjects in the same psalm and he uses the same language there's got to be a point and i would suggest to you this morning that when he makes petition for to god in worship and when he makes appeal to god in warfare there are two sides of the same coin When I worship God, it is an act of spiritual warfare. Conversely, when I appeal to God for victory, it's an act of worship. There are two sides of the same coin. I think that's, I think there's any, uh, it's difficult not to consider it or understand it that way when you look in the full context of Scripture and particularly the context of the Psalms. Second Chronicles thirty two twenty one, um, King Hezekiah is being confronted by Sennacherib. Just another example of this, the king of Assyria. And this is, the, I think, the reference to Isaiah that I mistakenly made earlier. Both Isaiah and Second Chronicles were told that King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet prayed about the threat of siege by Sennacherib and cried out to heaven. The text says the angel sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Syria so that he returned in shame to his own land. The battle belongs to the Lord. And that's just as true today in our spiritual battles as it was for the saints in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most remarkable illustration of this is found in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is another psalm of David. It's a psalm, uh, it's another royal psalm. It's written about the king. And it begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In the very first verse. And as you read through the rest, um, there are clearly uh, references to crucifixion. He talks about how his strength is dried up like a potsherd and how his tongue cleaves to his jaws. He's dehydrated. He talks about how they parted my garments before me and, and from my vesture did they cast lots. All of that taken right out of the Gospels. Actually, the Gospels were taken out of Psalm 22. 
And interspersed with that is worship. Like he always does. He's combining war and worship. In the verse 22 of Psalm, uh, correction, verse 3, the second half of verse 3 in Psalm 22 is probably one of the most astonishing verses on worship that we have. It says he inhabits the praises of his people. He inhabits the praises of his people. So when I read through the Psalms, I consider the uh, worship, the, the connection between worship and spiritual battle. So what are we to do with this? What's the, what's the point of all this? Just this. When I am grieved over the state of my country and I pray for my country, I worship God. When I am struggling with a financial crisis in my life or those I love, I worship God. When I struggle over a fractured relationship, I worship God. And if worship, and I continue to worship God. And when I'm depressed or when I'm using chemicals or when I'm um, be, uh, becoming psychotic, I worship God. You cannot at the same time be worship God and be angry. You cannot at the same time worship God and be depressed. God gives victory because he inhabits the praises of his people. Number seven, when I worship God in my appeal, I may not always get the answer that I want, but God is still glorified. And given an example, I'll go through briefly, is the example of Paul, who was given an exalted position before God. And so God gave him a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was, but it was something obviously unpleasant. And Paul says three times, I, worship, I appeal to God. And I um, implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace, there's that word again, my enabling power, my unmerited favor is enough, is sufficient for you. For my strength, my power is perfected in weakness. So what do I do? I glory in my weakness. I glory in my infirmity so that the power of God may be manifest in me. All right. Let's go back to Midway. We've got McCluskey out here. He's over the Pacific Ocean. He's lost the fleet. He doesn't, and he's facing disaster. And at 1020 that morning, the United States was losing the war in the Pacific. And he sees off in the horizon a rainbow. And he didn't know what, he couldn't explain it. He'd never seen that before. It was weird. It was unusual. And so taking his own life, and the lives of his compatriots, putting that at risk, he chases that rainbow. Well, it was the, the destroyer, a Japanese destroyer called the Arashi, and it had been engaged with a submarine and got separated from the Japanese fleet. Now, if you ever see a motorboat, it has, uh, it's cooled by water, and there's a little spout in the motor that discharges the coolant, the water, and the big ships are the same way. And so this destroyer had about a four-inch spout, and it was shooting out water from the coolant. And it was, um, it was under steam. It was moving fast. And so it was pushing out a lot of water, like a fire hose. And that water created a mist. And that mist was blended with the tropical heat of the Pacific, and that created what? A prism that resulted in a rainbow. And that rainbow was visit was visible from across the Pacific Ocean. And McCluskey followed it. 
and he found the Arashi, and the Arashi wake pointed a straight line. It was going straight, it wasn't zigzagging, and that straight line pointed where? To the Japanese fleet. So by 1020 that morning, uh, he broke radio silence. He uh, uh, ordered his pilots to follow him. And that was heard by uh, bombers from the Yorktown. And the three of them attacked that um, fleet. The, and within 10 minutes, the Ikaga, the Ikagi, and the Soryu were burning and sinking. And later that day, in another exchange with the Yorktown, the Hiryu, the fourth carrier, was attacked and sunk. And both the Yorktown and the Here You were sunk. So by the end of that day, June 2nd, June 3rd, depending on when you mark the calendar, the Japanese lost four carriers. And, and the United States still had two. They had the Enterprise and the Hornet. And with that, they were able to prevail and stop the Japanese attack and begin the counterattack. People in the Japanese government recognized that without their four carriers, the war was lost. Not many of them, but some of them recognized that. And so, because they could never compete with, with America in industrial power in replacing those carriers. By the end of the war, the United States has it is estimated 70 aircraft carriers, light and heavy carriers. It was amazing. Uh, some historians say the number is closer to 90. That's over one carrier every two weeks for the remaining 38 months of the war. So the Japanese began then what is called a battle of attrition. And a battle of attrition means that if I can't win the war, I'm going to inflict as much damage on my enemy as I can. And so what, faddled, battled, um, what followed the Battle of Midway was devastating ground attacks in Guadalcanal, in um, uh, uh, Okinawa, and Iwo Jima. Names that were foreign to American citizens at that time, but have become legend in history to us. And so this was a battle of attrition where they were attempting to destroy and discourage to get the best deal they could when the armistice came. Historians have suggested that in that 10 minutes between 10.20 and 10.30 was unprecedented in history in a giant pendulum swinging from one side to the other. It not only changed the course of that battle, but it changed the course of the war and ultimately the course of history. Number eight in your notes, Satan knows that he's lost the war. Revelation 12 says, Woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. The issue in spiritual warfare was decided 2,000 years ago on a cross in Israel. And so the battle has been decided it's over. What remains with Satan is a battle of attrition. Satan wants us to be discouraged. He wants us to be depressed. He wants the church to be ineffective. He wants us to be divided. He wants us to be impotent and deprive ourselves of power in advancing the the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and fallen world. But you and I know better. We are engaged in this spiritual war, and that war often results in violence. But as disciples of Jesus Christ... We deploy worship 
as warfare, as a weapon in warfare and spiritual battle. And God bless you this morning as you consider that principle and things that you might change in how you pray and how you engage in that battle. We have no excuse for standing aside and not being engaged in this war. But we, and we have no excuse, in my view, to not recognize the power that we bring. We were told by, um, uh, actually, uh, one of our translators was told by witch doctors in Africa, you, have, you Christians, you have no idea what kind of power you have. So God bless you as you consider that this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to study your word. We thank you for the, um, the power that you put at our disposal when we rely on you and we do not rely on our own efforts. We pray that you would guard, um, guard us and protect us from our own pride and that we would depend upon you and that we would be faithful in our worship and our prayer to you to prevail in this great spiritual battle of our age. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.